Good morning. My name is Dave. If you're new with us, it's great to be with you. Hey, we're in uh, week three of a series that we're walking through together through the book of James. And we're considering, um, as we look at this book, James is asking us to consider, what does it look like to live with wisdom? But not just wisdom in general. James is offering us wisdom on what it looks like to live in this world, but in light of eternity. To not just live for this moment, for this life, but to live this life in light of the greater reality of eternity with God. To live as people of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, here's some wisdom that will help you live in a way that doesn't begin to mix the values of our fallen world with the values of following God. There's this tendency and this temptation, James knows, for those things to get mixed together. And he says, no, like, live wisely. Live solely as people who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we are diving into the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And in this section of the book, James is going to hone in on an area where your life and my life and our loyalties to Jesus are often challenged. He's going to hone in on a place where we are tempted to let the fallen, broken values of the world influence us and pull us away from following God. And if you have your Bible, turn there with me to James chapter 2. We're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. If you're using a Bible out of the pew rack in front of you, it's page 978. And as you turn, let me tell you where we're headed today. Um, this is where James is taking it. It's sort of the road map for the message this morning. First of all, James is going to share his concern. I'm going to give you four C's today. Four C's. He's going to talk to us about what the problem is. Here's what I'm concerned about. Secondly, he's going to say, this is the conflict. This is why the thing I'm concerned about is so bad. Here is where the rub is. And then he'll offer the cure how we can be changed, how we can be pulled back towards the living for Jesus gospel life that God longs for us to have. And then finally there'll be a conclusion and we'll talk about the result, the result of that cure in you and in me. So four C's, it's a good alliteration day today. I'm excited about it. Um, I've shared before that when I was a kid, my parents loved musicals. My dad especially loved uh, musicals, And so every time we were on a long road trip in the car, my brother and I would be subject to listening to these musicals trapped in the back seat with nowhere to escape for hours and hours and hours. And one of my dad's favorites was the musical Fiddler on the Roof. And because of that, it sort of got like ingrained into me and I happen to love Fiddler on the Roof as well. And Fiddler is, is a play about a poor Jewish dairy farmer named Tevia who's actually struggling with the changing world around him. He's struggling with sort of how everything is changing around him and, and he's thinking about his life and who he's been and who he wishes that he would be. And at one point, Tevia sings this song. It's a song where he dreams about wealth or he dreams about being a different person. And it's probably my favorite song of the play. It's called... If I were a rich man, you got it, right? If I were a rich man, right? It's been like a lifelong dream to sing that in front of a crowd. And so today, like, if nothing else goes well, 
I feel, check it off the list. Um, if, if, if you're, <laughs> thank you. If you're familiar with our, with Journey Arts Theater, it's a, it's a theater group of young people. They actually meet here in our facility. A lot of our young people are involved in it. A couple years ago, they put on Fiddler on the Roof, and our very own Joshua Barksdale played Tevia, and he sang that song and absolutely slayed it. Like the best performance of that song I have ever seen from this high school kid. Um, it was just really fun to watch. But at one point in the song, here's what Tevia sings. Here's what Tevia says. Listen to these words. He says, If I were a rich man, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them. And it wouldn't make one bit of difference if I answered right or wrong. Because when you're rich, they think you really know. When you're rich, they think you've got the answers. And what Tevye is saying here is exactly what James is talking about in our passage today. It's the concern that he wants to offer his readers and you and me this morning. Listen to what he says. Listen to his concern. James chapter 2. He begins this way. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, friends, James is writing to people who live in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire in the first century, about 2% of the population was part of the elite. And there were a few different levels, a few different status levels of what it meant to be elite in the Roman Empire. And the very top, the very top class, the very top category were the senators. The senators had status and wealth and privilege and power in spades. They were the very top of the list. Underneath them were folks called equestrians. And they were called equestrians because early, back in the early days of the Roman Empire, people in this sort of category actually had enough money to send horses into battle. In other words, if like the empire went to battle, you were wealthy enough that you could actually send a fleet of horses off to fight, to fight for, for the nation. So they were called equestrians, and there were several thousand of them. Underneath the equestrians were the decurions, and again, all of these... People, all these classes were part of the top 2% of the population. Everybody else, the other 98% were not elite. They were part of what they called the vulgus. Does anyone know what word we get from a vulgus? Yeah, they were the vulgar. Why? Because they couldn't afford baths or bathhouses. They were the vulgar, unwashed masses of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, the world into which James is writing, it was very clear where you stood, the position you held in the social world was what you were worth. If you wanted to know how valuable you were, you just had to look around. And one of the very clear ways 
that this was demonstrated. One of the very clear ways you could discover and see and tell who was worth what in this society had to do with clothing. Clothing was all about status. In our day, clothing is a little bit about status. In the Roman Empire, it was all about status. Most of us have heard of a toga, right? Some of you may have been to a toga party. That's a story for another time, maybe in a confessional somewhere. It's actually um, a very difficult article of clothing to wear, very difficult to get on. In fact, the elite would have servants who were specially trained to wrap them in their togas. Togas were not a convenient, easy-to-put-on item, but they were very, very prized, and here's why. Only Roman citizens could wear togas. If you were not a Roman citizen, no toga for you. It was actually against the law to wear a toga if you're not a citizen of Rome. If you were a senator... Not only could you wear a toga, you could wear a toga with a purple stripe down the side. You could add a little fashion, a little pizzazz. Isn't that cool? But it was illegal again to wear the purple stripe if you were not a senator. If you were an equestrian, you were allowed to wear a gold ring. If you, again, if you were not an equestrian, it was forbidden by law. You could be punished. You could be beaten if you wore a gold ring and you weren't an equestrian. This was so prominent, this idea that equestrians only wore gold rings, that to be an equestrian was sometimes simply called the honor of the gold ring. Ah, you have the honor of the gold ring. In other words, I can wear a gold ring and you can't. That ring said loud and clear, I matter more than you. I'm worth more than you. I am higher up the ladder than you are. So clothing in that day was all about reinforcing the status of who matters most. And everybody knew it. Another thing that indicated how important you were was seating At public events or even private events, you would literally be seated according to your rank. In other words, you could come into an event, take a look around at the crowd, and determine instantly who matters most here, who's valued and prized and worth more than the other people in the room. And again, friends, in the Roman Empire, this was not something they tried to hide. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't underneath the surface. It was very, very out there and in your face. In fact, they took pride in it. Cicero, a famous Roman scholar and philosopher, wrote, Rank must be preserved. In other words, at the very center of our society, core to who we are as Romans is this idea that you have people on top and you have people on bottom. Another famous Roman writer said it this way, The existence of inferiors is good for superiors, for it enables them to point out those they are superior over. Where do you think that author fell on the social ladder, high or low? It is good to have inferiors because it helps superiors know how great we are in comparison. And right away, as James describes this scene, we see all of these factors at play. And and James is telling us, he's saying, I am concerned about this attitude that we see in our world showing up in the church. 
He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Favoritism. It's a really unique and very descriptive word, favoritism. It's a word that literally means to lift up your face. To lift up your face towards someone. It's a, it's a very vivid picture of what we do when we want to curry favor for someone. When we want to say, you matter to me. When we say, I want you to like me. Will you be my friend? Would you sit next to me? That, this is how you'd respond to someone that you admire. And we lift our face to them. And we ascribe value to them because of some superficial thing. And James is saying, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that who the world says is valuable is slipping into the church. That you might be tempted in valuing certain people or groups because of different things that are true about them and not just rich or poor. James says, maybe it's their wealth. Maybe you value people more because they have wealth or maybe it's their wardrobe or maybe it's their looks or the kind of car they drive, or the kind of house, the neighborhood they live in. Or maybe you'll give value to someone because of their race, or their gender, or age, or education, or personality, or charisma, or position, or popularity. You see, James in this passage talks about rich and poor But the larger principle that he's after is one that we must not miss. And that is how concerned he is that certain people might be considered of higher value than other people. That in the church, there's people who matter this much and there's people that matter this much. And James is saying that might be the case in the world in which we live. People might do that in your society, in your world, in this culture. But it must not be that way in you. It must not be that way in the church. And so this passage confronts us and begs us and demands that we ask ourselves some tough questions, friends. Stop for a minute and just consider, who do I tend to favor? Who do I lift my face to? Who gets my time, my attention my resources who is it that if I'm honest deep down I really want them to like me who are you tempted to roll the red carpet of your life out for when they're around who is that person that even though you've told three or four or five or ten people that you're just too busy and you just don't have time but when they come around now all of a sudden you make time do those people fit into a group See, maybe for you it is the rich or perhaps the attractive or maybe you're drawn to the popular or the pious or the charismatic. But all of us, all of us have people that we are tempted to lift our faces to. Just the broken, fallen human condition. Now, on the flip side, this passage says, and don't forget this question, who is it that you are tempted to ignore? Who in this world do you not see? Who do you judge more harshly than perhaps you should? Who do you not have time for? Or maybe you make time because you feel obligated, but it's trite, it's limited, 
There's nothing genuine or wholehearted about it. Friends, who are these people for us as a church? Who are the groups of people at Cedar Mill who are favored over others? Are there groups in our midst that are valued less, that feel less significant, less heard than other groups? Friends, I'll be honest, what we're talking about today challenges me and maybe it challenges you down to the very core. Because in our world, even though we're not as obvious, we're not as overt as the Romans were about who matters and who doesn't, even though we hide it a little better, even though it's underneath the service, favoritism... Groups of people feeling more and less valued than other groups of people. That is alive and well in America today, is it not? And friends, we must continue to ask ourselves, how are we doing as a church? And how are we confronting this as followers of Jesus in the world? How are we living differently than our society would have us live? And in the very next section, James tells us why. He says, here's why this is so important. Here's why I'm making such a big deal about it. He says, here is the conflict that arises when you, as followers of Jesus, show favoritism. Here's where we find the great rub. He says in verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. By the way, James says that a few times in in this book. And every single time, he wants you to do just that. Listen! Don't miss this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. James says, The problem with showing favoritism, in this case with favoring the rich over the poor is that it doesn't line up with a God who constantly honors the poor. Favoritism, according to James, is such an enormous problem for God's people because it comes into direct conflict with the values and character of God Himself. We discover this all over the Scriptures. Listen to this verse from Deuteronomy. This is from the very beginning of the Bible. It says... For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And now the author is going to say, what makes our God, what makes the true God, what makes the living God greater than all the other false gods out there, all the other lords out there, what makes him the greatest, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And then he answers the question. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He is no respecter of persons. He doesn't judge people based on the values of this world. Peter has this wonderful moment where this very truth is revealed to him in the the book of Acts. Peter, he's been following Jesus. He's now working in the early church. And he comes to this radical conclusion in Acts chapter 10. God doesn't favor Jews over Gentiles. God doesn't like pay, play favorites between races. He doesn't like the Jews more than he likes the Gentiles. And for us, we kind of go, well, duh. 
We knew that. How That does not seem strange. Why is Peter so dense? You see, the reason that is so significant is because back then, they didn't know that. That wasn't so certain. This is a huge revelation for Peter. They, see, they thought Israel was God's favorite. They thought they were the favorites. But then listen to this from Acts chapter 10. It says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then we think about Jesus and how he models this and how he shows us this and how he is a display of God's heart and God's approach to people in this world. And we think about how Jesus related to tax collectors and fishermen and Galileans and Samaritans and men and women and children and Pharisees. How he valued Mary's and Martha's. How he looked into the eyes of people on the far edges of society and valued them all. You see, when you read the Gospels, one thing you'll notice, one thing that'll just strike you and stand out to you so significantly is that they all got his time. They all got his attention. You see, Jesus, for him, it didn't matter. If you were a ruler or a beggar, educated or uneducated, a harlot or a hero, Jesus, as it says in Matthew 22, was not swayed by appearances. You see, he was not swayed by the things that sway us. He didn't value some people more than other people. Friends, favoritism is such a problem for believers of Jesus because if we are truly becoming like Him and making Him known, then we had better notice and prize and value people in the same way that He did. And then James takes it to another level and he drives the point down even further. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Again, James is just confronting something here. You see, in the Roman world, the legal system was not designed primarily for justice. There was some justice in there, but another big goal of the Roman legal system was to reinforce status. If you were a person of high status, you could drag, you could literally drag a person of lower status into the courtroom. There, there's a story that's recorded um, about a time where there's a person of high status named Servilius, and he saw that there was a trial going on. He walked past the courtroom and saw a trial happening, and he recognized the defendant. And so he went in to the courtroom and he took the witness stand he wasn't even a part of this trial and he said you know what for what it's worth I'm here as a person of the elite and uh, I recognize this guy and I have no idea what he's being tried for but you need to know that there was this one time that we were on the road and we came together in a narrow path and he was coming the other way and he did not get down off of his animal and let me pass so you should find him guilty and the jury did they found him guilty in that moment because if you were a person of high status, the law existed to protect you. That was the ancient world. And here James says, when you church, 
value the rich over the poor, you are just like the corrupt legal system of the Roman Empire. You're just like evil judges that take bribes and pervert justice. You're just like that corrupt system instead of reflecting the heart of God who values everyone the same. Now, friends, a quick aside here. I want to say something, and I want to be really, really clear about this. So so please don't miss this point. James isn't saying rich people are bad. Uh, Some of you will go back and you will read this passage, and he compares and contrasts the rich and the poor, and there's this temptation to start to think, maybe, maybe it's bad. Maybe he's saying it's bad to be rich. God, or James, isn't saying God prefers poor people over rich people. That's actually the opposite of the point he's making here. His message is that God doesn't show favoritism, that God looks past the things that we see, that he looks right through your poverty or your riches, that God sees the heart. However, at the same time, I do want to say this, what the Bible does constantly say and warn us of, and we need to hear this because a lot of us in this room, whether we know it or not, fall into the category of rich. What the Bible says is if you are rich, be real careful because you will face an overwhelming temptation to rely and trust and find your peace and hope and security in your earthly treasure instead of God. You see, the gift of poverty, the high, remember in chapter 1 he says, if, if, you're a per, if you're a poor person, take pride in your high status. The high status of poverty is that it tends to make people and help people see their need, including their need for God and Riches tend to make people blind to their need for God. And so while James here is not condemning all rich people, he does, along with all of Scripture, offer a warning to those of us who are rich. So we've had the concern, the problem of favoritism, the problem of valuing certain people over other people. Then there's the conflict, the rub between favoritism and the God we serve. And now we get to the good part, the cure how we can be changed, how we can become people who value others the way God values them. Here's what James says in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And James is being a little tongue-in-cheek here, a little sort of short snippet of comedy. You can only imagine someone saying like, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I've kept most of the law. I only accidentally killed this guy, but I'm, but I'm pretty much a law keeper. And people would go, well, it doesn't really work that way. And James is saying, yes, that's my point exactly. He's also showing us here the severity from God's perspective of being a person who shows favoritism. He says, you see how severe, you know how severe it is to commit adultery? You know how severe it is to be a person who murders? I would put favoritism. Devaluing people, valuing other people, some people over other people. I would put that sin on the same level. 
Let me break this down for you, friends. James says here, the answer is not trying harder to follow the law. You can't do it. It doesn't work. No one can keep the whole law. The cure for this problem with favoritism, and we all have this problem on some level, every single person in this room is tempted to raise and lift their face to someone. The cure for this problem is not working harder at treating everyone the same. If you get the message this morning, if you walk out of here and you think, man, great message, Pastor Dave, which I thank you for that, but you'd say, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to go off. I'm going to roll my sleeves. I'm going to the office and I'm going to spend more time with so-and-so and and I'm going to give him time and attention and I'm going to value him and I'm just going to do it. If that's what you walk away here with, well, I hate to disappoint you, but it's just not going to work. It's just simply not going to last. None of us can keep the law. Following rules is not the answer here. In fact, if you try to follow the rules, James says you will fail. Instead, he says, allowing yourself to be transformed, to be changed, to be internally transformed by the royal law. That's the cure. You see, the cure is love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the problem. We sometimes treat love your neighbor as yourself as just one more law, just one more rule that we have to follow, that we have to work at. But it's not. It's actually something so much more. But again, here's the problem. We don't know how to love our neighbors, those around us well, because we don't know how to first love ourselves well. This command makes no sense to us because we don't understand ourselves and so we can't understand the other. We don't understand the kind of love our neighbors need because we don't understand the kind of love we need. Let me tell you how we love ourselves and some of you, uh, this will really resonate. We love ourselves only sometimes. We love ourselves with conditions. We love ourselves based on performance, our performance. We love ourselves with a because. I love myself because. I love myself because I'm smart. I love myself because I'm popular. I love myself because I'm intelligent. I love myself because I'm successful or attractive or I know how to win the approval of others. I love myself because the scale says I weigh this. I love myself because I'm religious, because I'm ethical, faithful, moral, at least more so than the people around me. I love myself because I have the right belief system. I love myself because I have the right political perspective. I love myself because the report cards or SAT scores say that I matter. They tell me that I'm special, that I'm significant in some way. I love myself because on the sports field, I'm better than most. I love myself because I'm a good mom. Because my kids are good kids. I love myself because blank. What are you tempted 
to put in that blank. I love myself because blank. You know, I was just reading this week an author who talked about how there was so much pressure in our world, in our world maybe than ever before in the history of the world. There's so much pressure to be special, to be significant. How perhaps the greatest fear in our world might be that you are just ordinary. And so what's the response to this pressure? What's the response to this this urge, this push, that you have to be significant, you have to be special, you can't just be ordinary? Here is what I think the response often is. We respond by thinking, I must convince others and myself that I am not just normal, that I am not ordinary, that I am not just an average individual. I must convince myself and others that I am special, that I'm significant. And this explains a world where people constantly post things like, look at what I'm eating for dinner. Isn't it amazing? You see, even my meals are phenomenal, better than yours. That's how significant and special I am. I eat like this. Or, hey, I just spent the day at the coast and the weather was perfect. And as you can see from this photo, my boyfriend and I or my spouse and I are nothing but madly in love all the time. Never mind the entire car ride out here where we fought and argued. I won't post about that. Or look at me at another party. Look how many friends I have. Look how happy we are. Do you see how many people like me? I'm special. I'm significant. I'm anything but ordinary. Or or here's one. This one will cut a little deeper for some of you. Here's another cute, amazing, and wonderful feat by my child that just tells me and all of you once again what a great parent and what a special family we have. Man, I'm so special. You see, we've bought into a world, we've bought into, I think, a lie that says you're only special because... You're only special if you perform in your area of choice. And friends, the gospel has some wonderful news for you. The gospel has some tremendously freeing news for you who live in this world. And underneath this pressure, the gospel says, here's what the royal law that brings freedom says. God does not love you because. He loves you just as you are with no requirements no strings attached he loves you as a person created in his image he loves you and here's the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ word unconditionally without condition with no performance Needed. He loves you the way you were designed to be loved. He loves you the way your soul longs and, and yearns to be loved. The gospel says this, You are so special, so unique, so fearfully and wonderfully made. And God knows this. The creator of heaven and earth knows how special you are. So now you are free from having to prove it to yourself and the rest of the world. Because his opinion, 
the opinion of the Lord of all matters so much more and overshadows every other opinion out there, even yours. You don't have to convince yourself or anyone else because God says you are amazingly special. Let me give you an example. This is sort of a personal example and maybe a stretch for some of you to relate to, but I hope you'll grasp what I'm saying. Um, my example is my sermon. If you've ever done public speaking or if you've ever preached in a church, you'll know that when you give a message, when you give a sermon, it is a very vulnerable place. You get up, you pour your heart out, you pour your week's work out, you give like everything you have and then people comment and critique on some level and even when they don't email you or talk to you, you know they're talking about you behind your back and so you feel this incredible sense of vulnerability in that moment and I'm always wondering like, wow, was it good? And sometimes people have this assumption that when you get down preaching, you think, man, I nailed it. I always think, was that terrible? Was that my last Sunday? Will they ever have me back again? I think that almost every week. But here's, here's the truth. If my wife likes my sermon, if we get home or I sit in the front pew here and Amy says, Honey, you killed it today. That was amazing. Wow, God was moving and you were insightful and charming and funny and deep. And man, I, I could listen to you every week. If Amy likes my sermon, then guess what? It matters little what any of the rest of you think. In fact, I can come to work on Tuesday. I have Mondays off. I come to work on Tuesday and the whole rest of the staff can say, you were awful, Dave. That was terrible. The worst we've ever seen. The elders can consider releasing me and I'll just be like, sounds good. My wife thought I was great. Because why? Her opinion overshadows all of your opinions. Now, I know some of you are a little bit nervous right now, and so I will add this. One of the gifts to me, and also, I believe, to our church, is that while Amy loves me and encourages me and supports me a lot, she is at the same time not overly impressed by me. So this works to keep me very, very humble and grounded constantly. It's a good and healthy thing. But the point remains, right? There are opinions that overshadow every other opinion out there. And that's God's opinion. It should be God's opinion. Some of you, you don't know. You don't believe. I'll take it even farther. Some of you don't feel that God loves you. You see, some in this room have never allowed the gospel, the overwhelming love and acceptance and joy and pleasure that God takes in you to penetrate deep into your heart and soul. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you imagined him just staring at you, just sitting across from you with a smile on his face and saying... Son, I am so proud of you. Yeah, I know. I know I know about all the stuff. I know about every bit of it. And yet, that doesn't even faze me. I'm so proud of you. Daughter, you are so lovely to me. I find joy in you. So much joy. More joy than you can ever imagine. Just the way you are. When was the last time you allowed the Lord of 
heaven and earth to say those things to you. And you let that truth penetrate not just into your mind, that it became something that you didn't just know, but something that you felt deep in your soul. You see, the gospel says, instead of striving to get to a place of unconditional love, instead of striving to get to a place where you deserve the love of God, you can live from a place of being unconditionally loved. You can just be overwhelmingly and unconditionally loved by God. And from that place, now not having to prove to anyone or yourself, you can live from that place. The gospel empowers you from the inside out. It changes your heart from the inside out. The power of God's love and unbelievable mercy can change who you are. It can change how you see yourself. It can change how you love yourself. And then it will certainly change the way you love others. Because when we've been loved with no strings attached, that's when we're empowered to love others in the same way. This is why James closes with these words this conclusion he says speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful mercy triumphs over judgment here's what james says He says, it is impossible to experience the mercy of God, the unconditional love of God and Jesus Christ, and not have that mercy transform you into a person who shows mercy. Not you better go show mercy if you want to get mercy. No, but once you've received mercy, once you've experienced mercy, once the mercy of God and Jesus Christ has penetrated deep into your heart, you can't help but be transformed into a person of mercy. It is impossible to encounter a God who says, I don't love you because. I don't love you because of anything you are or are not. And not have that unconditional love transform you into a person who loves people in this world in an unconditional way. You see, that's when favoritism dies. When the mercy of God is real, when the unconditional love of God is present, favoritism becomes an absolute non-factor. And that's why James says, the very last place favoritism should exist in this world is in the church of Jesus Christ, where the unconditional love and mercy of God reigns and rules supreme. Everybody's even at the foot of the cross. He's saying all the judgment and favoritism... And I love you because tendencies that live in our hearts because of sin are melted by the overwhelming mercy of God we encounter in Jesus. And friends, that is why every single week when we gather together, we share this meal. We share this meal because... If you're like me, you are so tempted to forget. You are so tempted to forget that God's love is unconditional, that there's nothing you can do to earn it. And so I come all the time, Lord, you should love me. And here's why. Here's what I did this week. Here's who I am. Here's who I'm becoming. Here's what I've accomplished. God, you should love me. And God says, no, let's get back to basics. Let's get back to square one. Let's get back to the reason that I love you. It has nothing to do with you, Dave. See, this is a meal that reminds us that we serve a God who doesn't just dream of becoming a more rich and powerful being, but a God who comes to earth, a God who came singing a song, but it's not the same song we talked about at the beginning. It's a different song. See, the song Jesus comes to earth singing is this song. If 
I were a poor man. If I were a poor man. You see, he's a God who came down to earth, was born in a manger, and took off heavenly clothing, and just wore rags, and died the death of a slave, so that we could experience that unconditional love of a God who says, you matter to me, you are important to me, you are valuable to me, you're so valuable that I'll give my son, that I would give his life, that I would lay my life down for you. Not because of anything you've done, or achieved, or accomplished, just because of who you are, just because you are created in my image. And so this morning, I invite you to come to the table again today to just remind yourself of the God who says, you are special. You're so special that I gave my life for you. You're so special that I gave my body and I shed my blood so that we can be in relationship forever. You see, friends, let the immensity, the power, the mercy, the unconditional love of the gospel not just strike your brain but penetrate into your life and your heart and begin to change you. Think about a God who loves you so much that he would give his son for you and then ask the question, am I special because of anything? No, I'm just special as a child of God. This morning I want to invite you, come to the tables, take the bread, the cracker, the cup, and bring the elements back to your See, we're going to receive them together as a church today as a way, a way of declaring favoritism will have no place in this community. Why? Because God doesn't play favorites and neither will we. And this morning, I don't want to ask you to do anything except for just soak in the fact that you are a person who is loved by your heavenly Father. Just imagine Him saying it to you. Just picture Him talking to you about it just let it soak all the way down from your head into your heart this morning so when you're ready come to the table there'll be also folks up here on the sides in the back if you need prayer if you need help processing God's love in your life what that looks like maybe some people who have treated you like you weren't worthy like you didn't matter or maybe you need to ask forgiveness for some places where you've treated others in that way But come this morning to the table soaking in the unconditional love of God and then just a minute after you've had some time we'll receive the elements together. The tables are open when you're ready.